0: This week on Worldview, world leaders, including Prime Minister Modi, commit to new goals at COP26. But can they actually save the planet from overheating and its smallest islands from drowning? We have a special guest, Maldivian leader, Mohamed Nasheed, up ahead. Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sahasini Heather. A high-stakes summit is underway in Scotland that's being called the last hope to stop catastrophic climate change. Nearly 200 countries are represented there, and among their goals to secure a deal on global net zero emissions by 2050 and to limit the planet's warming. Now, scientists and climate activists have long been seen as very alarmist for suggesting that global warming and climate change will destroy planet Earth. But by this week and the 26th meeting of the Conference of Parties, COP26, as the UN coalition is known, it was world leaders that were making the dire predictions and some new commitments. India, of course, was most closely watched as India has yet to update its NDCs or what are called the nationally determined contributions to countering climate change. And there was a lot of suspense about Prime Minister Modi's speech there in Glasgow in the UK where the COP26 conference was held because climate negotiators from the UK, US, EU had all visited in the last few months. John Kerry from the US, a special envoy, Alok Sharma, head of the COP26, both visited twice. Uh, India had not updated its NDCs nor made any real commitments about those NDCs up to date. Uh, And the deadline for pronouncing those NDCs was actually October the 12th. And then just a day before Prime Minister Modi went to Glasgow at the G20 in Rome, again, he refused to make any commitments on climate change. In fact, G20 Sherpa and Commerce Minister Piyush Goyal had even said India is not in a position right now to identify a year by which it would reach what is called net zero. Uh, A lot of climate change jargon for you up ahead, I should warn you. A net zero, of course, is when a country's carbon emissions are offset by taking out an equivalent amount of carbon from its atmosphere uh, so that emissions in the balance are what is called net zero. But then Prime Minister Modi made his national statement in Glasgow and he spelt out Five targets from Indi- for India, which have come up for a lot of applause, many around the world uh, are really relieved that India had finally made these commitments. Uh, the first, that India's non-fossil energy capacity will reach 500 gigawatts by 2030. Now, remember in June this year, the government had said that India thus far has 150 gigawatts of installed power capacity, and that includes hydropower. But it believes it's on its way to achieving this goal of 500 gigawatts by 2030. The second that India will meet 50% half of its energy requirements uh, with renewable energy. This by 2030, just eight years away. Now, if you don't consider large hydropower, uh, which has its own climate change and and, and global warming uh, impacts, at present. India gets about 12% of its energy requirements. Uh, Remember, energy installed or installed capacity is not the same as actual power generation or power available in homes and industries, etc. The third goal, Prime Minister Modi set out, is that India will reduce its total projected carbon emissions by a billion tons by 2030. Now, this actually means reducing current emissions by 22%, nearly a fourth. This could, of course, have a direct impact on development exercises as well. Now, at present, the top five emitters, uh, and in order, they are China, United States, European Union, India, and Russia. Uh, All of them have to make significant cuts in emissions in order to reach the global goals. The fourth goal by Prime Minister Modi was that India will reduce the carbon intensity of its economy to less than 45%, a fairly tall ask. And finally, the fifth goal, India would achieve net zero, as I explained, by 2070. Now, of course, 2070 is two decades after uh, the global goal of mid-century, around about 2050. So this means that, that on an average, the developed world, which has already reached its peak emissions, would have to reach net zero dates much earlier By 2030, in fact, and even developing economies, and China is the largest one that comes to mind, uh, that have promised net zeros by 2060 must reach at least peak emissions by 2030. That means the year after which their emissions begin to drop. Much will depend really on how the government now, words its NDCs because, as I said, that NDC, the nationally determined contribution, has not yet been filed with the UN. Prime Minister Modi has announced it. So, much will depend on the wording. The fine print still has to be read uh, and also on achieving all these promised targets for 2030. 2070 is a far way away because, unless these targets are achieved in the immediate future, the race really for 2050 or 2070 may just be lost completely. Now, uh, of course, activists like the young Greta Thunberg has referred to COP26 as a lot more blah, blah, blah. Uh, even so, broadly speaking, there were many concrete outcomes and COP26 will continue. Um, uh, to, uh, through the year, we will in fact see many of these outcomes and commitments being made. But so far, what we saw at the leader summit of the COP26, uh, there were commitments to cut emissions, to finance climate adaptation, and the launch of several new initiatives. So let's just look at six of the major outcomes of COP26. One was the net zero targets. Remember, India was the last of the major carbon emitters to actually declare a net zero date. Uh, Countries like China, Russia and Saudi Arabia have committed to net zero. By 2060, 10 years before India, the US, UK, European Union have committed to 2050 targets. Only 12 countries, remember, in the world have actually enshrined these commitments into a law. The European Union, which is far ahead of the rest, has a collective target of 2050. Germany and Sweden actually have 2045 as their target dates. Uh, The second outcome of COP26, ending coal use. The US, Canada and about 18 other countries, so more than 20 countries, committed at COP26 to stop all public financing for fossil fuel projects abroad, that means outside their countries, by the end of 2022. Uh, they're going to steer their spending into clean energy instead. However, no Asian countries, so big financiers like China, Japan, South Korea, were a part of that initiative. In another initiative, about 130 countries uh, joined a coalition to end and re- reverse deforestation by 2030. So by 2030, in eight years, they will stop deforestation and reverse it. India wasn't part of either the co- coalition on ending coal or an ending deforestation. However, India was one of the co-authors of one on solar energy. India and the UK launched an initiative called the Green Grids Initiative, One Sun, One World, One Grid, backed by uh, about 80 countries, and that list is increasing, to dramatically uh, accelerate the global transition to clean energy, so to put in a lot more grids and to connect them up across the world. Uh, the fifth outcome was one of climate financing. And remember, for countries like India, this is uh, perhaps the most important. And here we saw uh, on Finance Day, as it was called at COP26, 500 global financial service firms that represent a potential funding of $130 trillion. That's a whopper. That's about 40% of the world's financial assets. And they committed to prioritizing climate goals when they finance projects. Let's see them actually walk the talk, however. Uh, And the final, the sixth one, was one about climate vulnerability. So um, the the, uh, countries and the populations that are the most vulnerable, uh, about 48 countries have formed something called the Climate Vulnerable Forum. Uh, This is led by Bangladesh, by Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, who chaired it. Uh, And they've demanded now that there must be an immediate announcement of a climate emergency across the world because of the kind of impact that they face as smaller countries, as more vulnerable countries. South Asian countries like Afghanistan, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, of course, and the Maldives are a part of this coalition, so it's important for India. Uh, India, in fact, led a program for infrastructure for resilient island states, or IRIS as it is known, to help small island states on the risk of being flooded. That is certainly one of the big risks. And it brings us to our special guest here on Worldview. We are going to try and travel a little bit to Glasgow. With me is a very special guest, uh, the former president of um, the Maldives, the speaker of the parliament or the majlis, uh, Mohamed Nasheed. Thanks so much for joining us. A very interesting role at the COP26. Uh, You're the ambassador for ambition. What that means, you'll have to tell us uh, for the Climate Vulnerable Forum, how do you think the outcomes of this COP26 mean for the CVF?
1: We are advocating uh, to see that the planet does not heat above 1.5 degrees measuring from the Industrial Revolution. We are now at 1.2 degrees. Prime Minister Modi's speech uh, that gave details of where India is going. Uh, We thought the Climate Vulnerable Forum feels that it is very encouraging. India has said that they will in 20 years change 50% of their energy needs to renewables. That would create a catalytic effect uh, in the renewable energy market. The climate vulnerable countries are also asking countries to submit their NDCs every year instead of every years, and also asking countries to raise their ambition every year. The Vulnerable countries are also very uh, concerned about the pledged $100 billion. We like to see that the rich countries contribute towards our adaptation and also towards our mitigation efforts, and uh, developed countries. Uh, promised to do that in 2009, they promised to pay 100 billion dollars a year, uh, but that hasn't re- uh, that hasn't
0: we haven't achieved
1: that, and countries haven't contributed this.
0: Trying to get the developed world to do their share to uh, not only cut emissions much more since they are the ones that contributed much more to them in the first place, but also to contribute in terms of funding, in terms of uh, adaptation technology, uh, in terms of making it possible for uh, less developed countries, developing world, emerging economies uh, to, to, uh, to kind of uh, reach these goals. Don't you think all of this is uh, is going to be difficult by 2050?
1: Developed countries promise to contribute 100 billion dollars a year to developing countries for their adaptation and mitigation needs that hasn't been met um, again this cop they are saying that they will meet it by 2023 and they're also suggesting that they will have from 20 from 2021 to 2025 5 billion dollars of contribution 500 billion dollars of contribution but uh, we would like to see that these funds are audited by the International Monetary Fund, with um, Climate Vulnerable Forum countries uh, sitting in the decision-making, in the auditing. Most CVF countries, vulnerable countries, pay, pay, spend 30% of their budget on adaptation. And on top of that, these countries pay 20% of their budget for loan repayment. We really don't have money at all. We will be stressed in every, every single side. I think one of the first effects, big effects of climate change will be that many countries will go default. We are also asking countries to restructure our debt, to the debt holder. Uh, We would like to see uh, countries agreeing that percentage of our repayment of the debt can be used for a climate resilient project. So it's in a sense a debt swap. Uh, What do you think South Asia as a whole can do really? Closer cooperation, regional cooperation is very necessary, especially when we go out to the rest of the world and try to advocate and try to get other countries to agree. Weight of India and its its strength and its support is extremely relevant. If we can, you know, unify ourselves, unite ourselves as a single block, and then negotiate, it would be extremely, extremely yes. useful. One of the things that we can really do is try and find nature-based adaptation measures, there is a big need for a regional dialogue on climate change.
0: As president, uh, you actually hosted a a cabinet meeting underwater. Looking back, what do you think of that cabinet meeting today?
1: Well, I think we wanted to impress the gravity um, of the issue. Uh, uh, And uh, we wanted to suggest that this is where we will end up. People took notice uh, and we have moved a long way since then. And I think a number of countries have changed. People have changed. The ground realities have changed. There's bad weather upon us now almost every day. And people do understand that there is something wrong with the planet.
0: We'd like to thank you so much for joining us all the way from Glasgow. Maldivian former President Mohamed Nasheed there. Now the focus... Uh, that he was making on South Asia is particularly important, particularly for India, but for the rest of the world as well. Because according to 2021's Global Climate Risk Index, it is the single most vulnerable regional bloc. The Asian Development Bank, the ADB, now predicts a decrease of 11% in South Asian GDPs as a whole, uh, if they follow the business-as-usual emissions, BAU as it's known, Uh, emissions uh, through the century with global warming, sea levels rising, estimates are even predicting there will be nearly 63 million climate migrants or climate refugees by the year uh, 2050. So we're looking at immediate impacts in South Asia of global warming unless drastic actions are really taken. There's much more on this on our website www.thehindu.com. My colleague, Deputy Science Editor, um, Jacob Koshi's coverage of COP26 is certainly uh, all there and comprehensive for you to read. Uh, there's an opinion piece by me on why one South Asia really makes better sense batting for one South Asia. But I do have many book recommendations for you. Uh, and here on Worldview, I'm happy to bring in uh, a few extra this time. Uh, the Nutmegs Curse, of course, by Amitav Ghosh. That's the latest, his latest book on. uh, on climate change called The Parables for a Planet in Crisis. Uh, But many of his books, The Hungry Tide, uh, The Great Derangement by uh, uh, Climate Change and The Unthinkable, uh, all are great works by Amitav Ghosh on understanding climate change. Bill Gates brought out a new book in 2021 called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, The Solutions We Have and the Breakthroughs We Need. He's, of course, a big financer uh, on climate change. Uh, there's The Next Stop, Natural Gas and India's Journey to a Clean Energy Future, collection of works edited by Vikram Singh Mehta, who used to actually head Shell. The Climate Solution, India's Climate Change Crisis and What We Can Do About It by Mridula Ramesha. A very practical sort of book. Uh, there's a book talking about Indian air pollution and there are several, but this one is interesting. It's called Air, Pollution, Climate Change and in India's Choice Between Policy and Pretense uh, by Dean Spears. Uh, Then some books on the wildlife and, of course, uh, pollution and and climate change, global warming. Uh, The conversation cannot end without a conversation on conservation, on uh, wildlife protection. Uh, And these are some of my favorite books uh, on on that issue. There's The Vanishing that just came out, Chronicling India's Wildlife by Prerna Singh Bindra. Uh, And two books by Bahar Dutt, uh, who's an acknowledged expert, on the environment called rewilding and then green wars as well. Both of them worth reading. Uh, and finally, I want to end this uh, episode on a note of hope. And that's a book coming out soon by Jane Goodall, uh, the famous environmentalist and naturalist and conservationist across the world. Uh, the Book of Hope is, is the literally the name of the book, A Survival Guide for an Endangered Planet. I do hope you enjoy reading and join us again here on Worldview from the team. Here. Thanks for watching.